Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in New York City today with Will Gadara, who I have known and admired and been in debt to for a long time because <laughs> he's been such a champion for Share Our Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign. Um, and he's a um, owner and partner in 11 Madison Park and Nomad. We're so thrilled to see you again, Will. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. And somebody else who I've known from afar, Kat Kinsman, senior editor at Extra Crispy and cooking show called No Pressure. You've got so many things, Kat, I don't even know where to begin, but um, I know that you're involved with something you've created called Chefs with Issues um, that we're going to want to talk about because chefs and their health are at the core of uh, a lot of what we think about at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. And um, you just took a mangled train here from Park Slope. You got here on time, even though you didn't think you would. So we're thrilled you're here, Kat. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Um, you know, where I'd like to start um, really just how you got to be doing what you're doing. And for some people, Will, at least for some people in the restaurant industry, it seems to be, it, it's almost always kind of a winding and circuitous path. But you've been involved in restaurants since you were 13. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. So, well, no, I grew up you in the knew? business. Yeah. No, you knew. Well, so my dad, uh, I, I feel very blessed by this. My dad was my hero. My my mom restaurateur restaurateur lifetime restaurateur. My mom, when I was really young, uh, she got brain cancer, and she survived it. But the radiation treatments of the cancer ultimately led to her being a quadriplegic. And so, my dad and I, you know, anyone, how old were you when this all happened? Six to, and it kind of just like her physical state deteriorated from there. And I'm I'm not bringing this up to like add a downer to the beginning of the conversation. Only to explain the bond between my dad and I. I think anytime there's a dose of adversity within a family like that, it either breaks you apart or it makes you really, really strong. And for us, it was the latter. And so my dad was one of those larger-than-life characters for me who, I mean, he's a restaurant guy, right? So he's working 12, 15 hours a day and taking care of my mom and me. And so, uh, A, if I wanted to spend time with him, I'd, I'd go to work with him. Um, and B, no matter what he did, I, I probably would have wanted to do that. He was just my my idol, and so he was also a very intentional guy. My dad's the exact same voice as I am, except his is an octave lower, and he was always very intentional about everything. So when I was 12, he sat me down. He's like, Will, you got to tell me what your life goals are. And so I had three of them, and he, he actually wrote them down and gave them to me a few years ago. And the first one was I wanted to marry Cindy Crawford. Um, I, I think I did better uh, in, in the wife that I ultimately found. Uh, second, I wanted to go to Cornell, to the hotel school. And, and third, I wanted to open my own restaurant in New York City. I never wanted to be a chef, though. I always loved just the ability to entertain in the dining room. Our, I don't know, we're blessed. We get to throw parties every single night. And we get to, I have in my partner, Daniel Hume, one of the greatest chefs in the world. What he creates, I get to deliver and then look at the expressions on people's faces when they experience those things. And so what kind of restaurant was your dad's restaurant? My dad was the president of a company called restaurant associates. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know that that was the company founded by Joe Baum way back in yep. the day, responsible for the rainbow room windows of the world, the four seasons. Um, and so he, he was with that company for a really long time. Well, we've got some similarities. My dad was, uh, worked in government and politics. Um, he worked for a congressman. And so I grew up my entire life 
as a child wanting to work in Congress, and my first job out of college was in Congress. And unlike your dad, my dad wasn't very intentional, though. He was his attitude towards <laughs> almost everything was it'll work out eventually. <laughs> he was the most laid back guy in the world, but somehow I wanted to be like him, and he was just he was the kind he was larger than life figure for me too. It's rare, just incredibly I, kind. I think most people want to do the opposite, the opposite of right. what their parents do. Right. All right. How about you, Kat? Where did the the food connection? begin? Did it start all the way at home? Sort of. I, I always feel like I sneaked in the back door with the whole <laughs> food thing. Um, my, my mother, God bless her, not the world's most inspired cook, a lot of home ec kind of recipes. But at the same time, like, well, I've always thought a lot about um, this. That you and I have some similarities. My mother has never been well. She's she's still with us, but she's been unwell physically and mentally for as, as long as I can remember. So when she was maybe not doing especially well, um, my dad would do the cooking. And especially on weekends that she, uh, she ran the religious education program at our parish. And so he would take those opportunities to experiment with food a little bit. And I remember when he first got the Mater Joffrey invitation to Indian cooking book, I came home from church that day and the house just smelled different than it ever had before. <laughs> I would say it's like that scene from The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color. I didn't know food could be in that range of, of sensations before. And I, it was just something I, I was really drawn toward it. And so is he. And so as I, as I got older and she was less and less able to sort of go out and leave the house and things, my, my dad and as sort of a lot of things were deteriorating, my dad would um, take us, my, my sister and me um, sort of alternate weekends and take us on little adventures. And his and mine were always going out and finding restaurants um, where I was in um, northern Kentucky and, and near Cincinnati. And we would drive around and look for food that really excited both of us. And when I went off to college, I realized that that was a way that I could really connect with people was to either cook for them or to talk about food. And it was just a really great way to to get to know people. And it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to find out how who somebody is by what they they grew up eating. And I was lucky enough to have some weird stumbles in my career. My um, master's degree is in metalsmithing rather than anything to do with... Metalsmithing? Metalsmithing. And that's because... You pursued that because... I, well, my undergrad was in <laughs> painting and sculpture, and I just I liked um, fire and metal together. So from an artistic <laughs> point of view, you were yes. going to be an artist using metal. Yes, and I, I really enjoyed that, and I moved to New York City and thought... Wow, I also really like to have a roof over my head and meals sometimes. <laughs> and luckily, the internet was happening right then. And I had, was sort of an early adopter of those, became an art director. But I was always an art director at publications uh, that also had an, uh, you know, an editorial element where they, I would somehow would sneak in and write. They would let me write about restaurants. They would let me write about music, whatever it, it happened to be. And eventually, I was able to sort of flip it around. And there was a position open just for the summer at AOL as the grilling editor. Uh, and I, I took a break from what I was doing. I was actually uh, working at an advertising firm and uh, I picked up the ball um, and the food editor left within a week or two to go to, to cooking school. The senior editor was laid off and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just thought, uh, I'm going to do this till somebody stops me. And somehow they never stopped me. And at the same time, you were starting to think in an intentional way. My work could be kind of anchored in the food world. 
I got to, I had had an inspiration. Um, I'd been friends with Pete Wells for a, a long time. Um, I, he was the friend of a guy I was dating. And I remember he wasn't writing about food at the time. And he was, he was such an enigma to me. And now he's, he's, he's one of my best friends. And then I remember when he got a job at Food and Wine as, it, as an editor there. And I thought, wait, you can do that? professionally as a living and it didn't occur to me that I could do it too for many 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 years and um he was always a champion of mine doing that it was it, it I really do have an incredibly random uh, career oh, well I want to kind of go back to your career because we've had other folks on the show whose parents have been in the restaurant business but I don't think any whose rise has been kind of as meteoric as yours. Um, so what else is going on there? I mean, what else made you as successful as you've been in such a short time? I mean, no, you're, you're still a young pup. I appreciate that. Uh, I've been really lucky. You know, my, my dad, again, I think his intentionality was instrumental. Um, growing up, he always wanted to make sure that I understood every element of the business such that when the time ultimately came where I'd have an opportunity to to go for it, I'd be as well-rounded as possible. And so whether it was, although I didn't want to be in the kitchen, he made me when I was a kid work in kitchens so that there would be um, enough of an empathetic sense in me and in, in how I kind of interacted with the cooks in the kitchen. And I mean, that on its own is one of the biggest things. You know, my entire company is built on the relationship between Daniel Hume and I that a great, great restaurant company should be run by both sides of the wall. And in our business, normally there's an unbelievable tension between the people cooking the food and those serving it. And so that was that was good. Yeah, I, you know, restaurateurs always talk about front of the house and back of the house and the tension that can exist between them. What does that actually mean? What does that look like? I mean, I think historically the people that worked in the dining room we're not professionals in our business. And the people that worked in the kitchen wanted to do that for a living. Maybe not historically, but for a very, very long time. And so the general relationship is that the people in the kitchen thought the people in the dining room were lazy and the people in the dining room thought the people in the kitchen were jerks. Um, I also think that uh, the two never operated uh, from a foundation of trust. When there was a mistake, people always just jumped to thinking it was the other person's fault. Even the way it's referenced front of house and back of house. It's always been seen as like two different teams. Um, we, we don't allow those words in our company. It's kitchen and dining room. Um, meant to insinuate, okay, just because you work in different rooms doesn't mean you're not a part of the same restaurant, part of the same team. And so, I mean, I, I think we do a much better job at it than, than we ever have before. And then also, most other places do, but it's a constant struggle. It's got to be a work in progress. You have to just kind of keep yeah, chipping away at. You need to work to to just get each side to feel empathy for what the other person's doing. Um, then, I mean, my first boss after college was Danny Meyer, um, who's also I think of as like a very intentional person. Yeah, no, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I always think of Danny as like everything he does is. So yeah, I was carefully I, thought out. I was on a panel with him and Drew um, the other day. Drew Nearprint. Drew Nearprint, yeah, who were my only two bosses outside of my dad. And, and Drew, for those who don't know, is Tribeca Grill here in New York and many other restaurants. And I was describing Drew as someone from whom I learned about intuitive hospitality. When you walk in, when he walks into a room, it, it lights up. Even the tables that he doesn't touch feel like kind of that energy that he brings into it. But from Danny, 
I learned about putting intention to that intuition. And that's a phrase that Danny uses a lot. And by the way, I understand he was also the last person that was on this show. And so you and I have extraordinarily big shoes to fill. But but in Danny, you know, I, I came up in a in a time when, and it's still the case now, where our our profession is really dominated by chefs. And I think that to be great at anything, to to give all of yourself in pursuit of something, you need to have heroes. You need to have people that you want to emulate. Um, and I was really lucky to be coming at a, at a time when, when Danny existed and then to be able to work so closely with him. I mean, that's when I got to know you the first time. Right, right. I believe so much in the power of language and being able to articulate yourself. And the first time I worked an autumn harvest dinner and got to hear you and Danny speak, that, I mean, those you need things to aspire to. And, and you've definitely been an inspiration to me as far as articulating ideas and inspiring people to rally around them. Well, you're kind to say that. We used to host, you used to host the Autumn Harvest Center at 11 Madison, and it was absolutely a stunning event. And I think we have supporters today who got introduced to us through that. Uh, how does it work? You talk about the relationship between you and uh, Daniel, the chef. Um, how do you guys make it seem to work so seamlessly? Is it is it harder behind the scenes than it looks, or than, than the way For you sure. talk about it on the air? No, that, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a delicate balance, right? It's not easy. Um, in the same way marriages aren't easy, in the same way any really great relationship isn't easy. I think it it would be easier to run a company alone because you don't have to convince someone to agree with you. Um, invariably, you know, one of the things we talk about, um, and it's in our, our field manual, which is our cultural guide of the company, this idea of needing to embrace tension. Um, I think if you put together a good team, you can find yourself in a situation where everyone... Uh, is aligned in this in the in the spirit of what you're trying to accomplish, but we're all a collection of human beings. We will invariably think that the right way to get there is is different. We're not going to always agree, and we talk about the importance of when there's tension that comes through disagreement on how to accomplish your collective goals to turn towards each other instead of away from each other, because a that just means that you're all really passionate about what you're trying to accomplish. And B, it means that if you work through those things, you're going to really find the best way to do whatever it is you're trying to do. And so Daniel and I have a few rules. Um, we read them in probably marriage counseling books. You like, know, don't, don't go to bed mad at each don't other. Don't go to bed night, angry. Kind of <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> I, I think it, like if you just can get through stuff in an objective, unemotional way before you go home, you wake up with a much lighter load on your back. And, and we remember that Okay, we, we started as colleagues, we became best friends, and now we're business partners. But as long as we always remember the fact that we're also best friends, the amount of care and respect that we give one another will will, will triumph above all else. Now, I was a poli-sci major, and um, one of the books we had to read was a book about presidential power by a, a scholar named Richard Neustadt. And uh, the thesis of the entire book was, uh, presidential power is the power to persuade. And we, when you think about that, that's true for any leader or any boss or any yeah. writer or any communicator. Really, that's the only, I mean, yes, you can hire and fire people, but at the end of the day, you have to persuade people. And I always tell people, it's not about your title. It's not about your job definition. You're either going to be successful in persuading, you know, the best idea is going to win. At least yeah. it should. Uh, and if you create that kind of culture, I think you can get a lot out of people. I think the one thing I would say about our relationship is, it, it can't always be me trying to persuade him to agree with me. I think that's where politics and a relationship are different. I, I think in our relationship, I need to always be open 
to the idea that maybe the right thing is to allow him to persuade me too. And so um, that is where we've really become strong over the years, is going into every argument knowing full well that my opinion might not be right. And that has made our whole thing, I think, sustainable. Kat, when you um, go to a restaurant, you go out to eat, or you go to your favorite place, you go to Eleven Madison or The Nomad, what are you... <laughs> What are you hoping for? What's the experience that you're looking for? I really love connecting with people. And I'm actually thinking of this particular lunch that I had at 11 Madison Park, uh, I think summer before last. And um, it was to celebrate uh, my my book coming out. My husband took me out to lunch. We hadn't, you know, we just said that was going to be our celebration. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was raining like crazy. And I was, uh, you know, calling into the restaurant from a block or two away saying, I'm going to get there. I'm just waiting for the rain to subside a little bit so I could run through there. Um, we, we finally arrived at the front door trying to cut through as many buildings as we could. And they handed us towels. And it, it and that set <laughs> this, this tone of it. I felt so taken care of. Um, but then there was a server there who I, I was in such a joyful mood and uh, I kept telling him, I'm so happy. And at one point he he said like, okay, you know, out of curiosity, I think we had set a really good emotional tone for the table because I try to be open and acknowledge people in their humanity and all of that. That's really, really important to me wherever I go, whatever interactions I have, whether it's with a Lyft driver or a cashier or whatever, to see somebody in their humanity. Because I've been on the other side of that transaction when somebody just sees you as a functionary and it hurts so much. And I kept trying to, and he said, okay, I just want to, you know, you keep expressing that. Are you worried that I don't think you are? And we had a fantastic conversation. <laughs> <laughs> about it we ended up having this really great uh conversation and i thought like okay i could see the you in him i i could and i said well it's important this this exchange of humanity here at, at lunch is really important uh to me because the thing is i know where you work and the way that you have have been taught to sort of do this and i want to give you a chance to show, like, show your humanity back to and also i just want to let you know that i think you were spectacular and it made me i ended up feeling so seen and and fed in all of the different kinds of ways and obviously not everywhere is 11 Madison Park but i i feel like people are so intensely crappy especially to front of house workers that the more of yourself that you can show um when you sit down saying like i am ready and happy to have a great time um, I, I think that's a gift you can give them and then they're going to respond in kind and then everybody um, ends up having an infinitely better time. Um, I always think you should be the best, one of the better parts of somebody's day and not make anybody day, anybody's days worse. So I try to be a good customer as well as I, I don't know, I'm, I'm happy when I can interact with people, be well fed and be with people I love at a meal. Okay, that's the longest I've ever heard anybody talk about a restaurant without mentioning the food, which is a real <laughs> testament to the values that you build into this restaurant. Yeah. You haven't said a word about what you ate or how it um, tasted. It it was but, it was brilliant. Well, I'm I'm close with a lot of people who are are front of house. So these are the I and and also with a lot of chefs. But I, um, y'all don't get a chance to talk about it very much, except at like the welcome conference. I think people people don't necessarily give a platform to the front of house people very much. So I'm so excited to talk about it whenever I can. Oh, I'm glad you did. Um, and you mentioned your book. Tell us about it. Ah, it's called Hi Anxiety: Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, and it's about my lifelong um, management of my anxiety and um, condition and panic. Uh, disorder and it came out in November of 2016 a week after the election. 
And how's it been received? <laughs> At the time, it was a little bit uh, fraught, <laughs> just because the the nature of the media cycle was really not all that interested in books right at that particular moment. But it's had a really long tail, um, and I, I still, on a on a regular basis, get notes from people who have read it, who have felt very very seen in it. Um, I pulled my skin off writing it and tried to show the. You know, the the reality of what anxiety looks like, that it's not just a sort of ticky little nervous Woody Allen kind of thing, that it's it's real, it's pervasive, and it has affected every area of my life. And in writing it, I was able to, and this was the great benefit of writing it, like have a, you know, a thousand foot view and then a up close view of all my patterns and habits that I have been able to identify and, and somewhat mollify throughout this. But the connection with people has been extraordinary. Was there a point at which you were able to step back and almost understand that there was a diagnosis for such a thing as opposed to just the feelings you were having? You know, I was uh, anxious growing up um, the entire time. It was almost a joke amongst my my peers that they, you know, would do an imitation of me and hands would be shaking. It's like, oh, ha ha, I'm nervous. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it was just sort of formed so much of who my character was. I was very in touch with the fact that I um, dealt with depression. I was diagnosed with that at age 14 or so. Um, but it wasn't until um, my early 30s, maybe I think actually I was 30. And I was going through a bad breakup and went on a medication that uh, treated both anxiety and depression. I had not realized until I had the absence of physical symptoms of anxiety, that that is what had been affecting me so intensely for so many years. And it was so palpable, the fact that I was able to change my decision-making process from whatever will make the pain go away, my stomach ache, my whatever it happened to be, to mollify a situation and just make the other person happy, make whatever it was go away, and instead make the decision that was right for me, that was absolutely game changing for me to be able to realize, you know, here is this thing that I didn't even realize was something because it was just so fundamental to my character. And that really empowered me to um, take my own well-being into consideration in a much more powerful way than I ever had uh, before. Um, it's you know, you're just, you're able to, it, caretaking of myself has been a, a lifelong struggle. Uh, and I still have my incredibly bad and, and dark uh, times with it. Um, but to realize that I, I tell myself when I'm in the depths of it, I recently had a time where I had a panic attack that lasted an entire month. I'm not exaggerating. It was, it was awful. Um, but the thing that kept me afloat was first of all, talking to a few uh, different people about it and really being honest with my husband about what was going on. Um, you know, connecting with a few friends in particular, um, Andrew Zimmern, who was so open about this and Hugh Atchison, who has been an incredible force for me, um, being able to connect with people in this really, really honest way. And to also be able to, my mantra was, you have felt better. And to remind myself that I have the physical and emotional capacity to not feel that way um, sometimes was really, you know, really kept me going to think it's not always going to be like this. Well, and as you probably know, Kat, better than anybody, um, anxiety is becoming such a societal epidemic and it's skewing younger. 
Uh, my wife, Rosemary, and I have a 13-year-old son who's maybe the least anxious kid on the planet. But his classmates, I mean, so many of his classmates at, at, at the age of like 6th, 7th, and 8th graders have and younger have serious anxiety issues. So, you know, raising attention, um, not just in the industry, but broadly, is I think critical right now. Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade are hell. I, I don't know about right, both of you, but those were some of the worst years of my life. But I remember feeling this back to being a kindergartner. Um, and uh, I, I can do it to this day. I'm, I'm showing I'm showing the two of them uh, my thumb that's sort of scarred over on the side that I, I pick um, as a habit. And I remember waking up, uh, you know, or, or just one day in kindergarten um picking at it like a, a scab on my leg at my thumbs and just like bleeding with nervousness what should a, a you know kindergarten kid be nervous about well you know it's just because that's how I'm I'm built um and I, I think it's important that we see uh you know see that younger kids um older people people at any stage of life can be dealing with this and that we are kind and empathetic with them and you know show them a better way to be it's also such a clever book title I just love it, and I it, uh, you almost have to say it the way you said it. Like I couldn't say it as well as you. Just do the title again. Oh, hi, anxiety. Yeah, see, I, I, thought, I don't think my voice goes. <laughs> I was brushing does, my does teeth, and, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh my god!" And I uh, and I had been out with my editor that night, and I sent her a long list, and she was like, "Nope, that one." Kat, you've focused a lot on how those in the industry uh, need to get healthy, stay healthy. Uh, what they need to do since the death of Anthony Bourdain. There's been a lot of attention on this, of course, but uh, well before that, this has been an issue for many uh, who work in the restaurant and food service industry. How did you, first first of all, t- tell us how you came to it um, and then tell us how Chefs With Issues has sprung up. Well, I've been dealing with mental health issues as long as I've been conscious, um, depression, anxiety, a panic disorder, and recently diagnosed ADHD. And uh, it's it's something that I have become increasingly comfortable talking about. And I had, I was the food editor for for CNN for um, s- several years. And in the course of that, I ended up writing some stories that weren't about food, um, that were about uh, struggles with anxiety and struggles about depression. And uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have a super supportive environment where that happened and able to foment some conversation around it. The fallout from that was, or uh, the result of that is that. There and at my next job, I would be interviewing chefs, and there would come a point in the interview when you know we'd go off record, and they would say, either I'm dealing with something or somebody in my kitchen is, and I thought it happens once or twice. Then it's you know it's they happen to trust me, and it started to happen all of the time or most of the time, and I was thinking like, what's going on with all of you? And there had been a few suicides that had happened, um, you know, in the months leading up to um, my starting this site. But I, January 1st of 2016, I threw up an an easy little website with with a survey on it asking people, you know, what do you do in the restaurant industry? What are you up against? What are you dealing with? And have you gotten treatment for it? Have you talked to anybody about it, et cetera? And I thought, okay, maybe a few dozen people will answer this. Um, well over 2,000 people have answered that. And I started getting letters uh, from people. I started getting emails. I started getting people just sort of stopping me in restaurants to want to talk about it. Um, and then the month after I launched, there were three pretty high-profile chef owner suicides. And uh, some of them were, a couple of them were pretty public, and well, one was not so much. And it made me wonder how many are we not hearing about. Um, so I started putting up articles on this website, and 
just this overwhelming uh, tide back of people saying, I've never heard this talked about. Here's here's what I'm going through. I remember one day sitting down and going through all the correspondence to redact any names or, or restaurants or, or anything. Um, and I got, came up with 20,000 words that people had sent to me of the pain that they were in, what they had been up against. And they were saying, I don't even necessarily need you to help me. I just need to put this somewhere. Um, so I started uh, getting a chance to talk about it in public. I talked about it at Mad Symposium in uh, 2016. Um, the audience there at the time, a lot of them were incredibly receptive. And, um, you know, the response from that was, was seismic. And there was a, still a really large contingent of people who were like, why, why are you talking about this? This, this isn't your business, first of all, because you don't work in restaurants. But also, you know, why are you trying to make people weak? Why are you trying to... Um, you know, rock the boat here. Why are you trying to take away our good time? Because the mantra is just, you know, shut up and cook, just muscle through it. Just, just do that. Um, I went to Mad Symposium this, uh, this summer, just a few weeks ago, and ran some breakout sessions. There is no denying, there's nobody denying now that this is a, this is a problem, especially after Tony took his life. Um, They realize you can be at the absolute pinnacle of what you do. And, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be hunky-dory and we need to talk about it. Um, I've known of, I think it's at this point, 12, 13 suicides since him. Um, and those are just the ones that I've heard about. I hear about them all the time. And uh, I started a Facebook group last summer when I was recovering from surgery. Um, and the, mo- the morning of his death, there were 828 people in this Facebook group. Um, there are almost 2,400 in it um, three months later. Um, people people needed a place to put this and, and talk about and uh, I think they are. And so, so of course, you know, many questions in my mind. But the first uh, is just why, like, what what is going on in the industry that this has become such an issue? How to how do you know? You guys have slightly different lenses on it, I'm sure, as a as an operator will. But um, what's going on? I mean, I think it's our, our industry is it's intense, and I think there's a machismo that is expected and. I think any time you combine two things, one, relentless intensity, not only in expectations, but in the number of hours you're working and the physical and emotional exhaustion that comes with that. And you combine that with an environment where it's not cool to uh, look weak. I mean, this is your area of expertise, but it, it seems like those two ingredients combined leads to to this sort of situation. And, you know, I I don't think it's limited to just the restaurant business. I think that people struggle so much with vulnerability without recognizing that whether it's in your own emotional health, whether it's in one's ability to be a great leader, that there is power in vulnerability. Um, it, it's liberating as an individual. It engages the trust of others when you're willing to admit your own weaknesses or mistakes because I mean, A, if, if the intention is to want to have a goal and, and set yourself out to do something and want people to follow you, it's a lot easier to follow, follow someone that you can relate to. And by definition of being human beings, we all have weaknesses and insecurities and it's much easier to follow someone that you know is open with theirs because you could see yourself one day at least having a chance of being like them. And so, I've kind of taken that a little bit. I guess I went off course there and took it to leadership. But 
I just think that our profession, like so many others, struggles with embracing the power of vulnerability, and that combined with the intensity of what we do. What is it that makes it so intense in and of itself and relative to other professions? No, for sure. I mean, the the intensity in the kitchen, I mean, kitchens are hot. You're working over flames. A, a service starts at 530. It may not end until 230. It, so there's a physical yeah, grueling element. You're to on it. your feet. Um, and it's not as if service stops for a half an hour for people to take a break. I think there's also just an emotional intensity um, that comes with you know, at a restaurant, you have one chance to get it right, especially one at the level of an 11 Madison Park where people are walking in with such high expectations. And if you really care about what you do, you put an incredible amount of pressure on yourself to not only meet those expectations, but to exceed them. And so I think there's a physical uh, nature to the intensity. I think there's an emotional nature to the intensity. And I think you need to be competitive to thrive in our business. And when you put a bunch of competitive and passionate people in an intense environment, it only has an exponential effect on itself. One of the things I love about open kitchens is whenever my wife Rosemary and I are out with our son, <laughs> who's 13, I say to him, Nate, I said, look how hard these people are working, like we're enjoying this meal. But look how physically hard, I mean, you could, you know, you don't see that in most things in life, right? You benefit from or enjoy the products or the services, but you don't see the work that goes into them. You do in a restaurant. I mean, one thing I, I do want to say, because I, I think it's appropriate to acknowledge the challenges and the difficulty and the intensity, but we also do it because we love it, you know? And, and sometimes there are too many people that spend so much time talking about how hard the restaurant business is, but it's also awesome. It's also the best job I could ever hope for. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. We don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah, and I never want to come off as the person that focuses on on how it's hard because we could all go and do something else, but we do this because there is nothing more fulfilling than it for the people who are engineered for it. Yeah, the, the stat that really stood out to me from the survey was that the vast majority of people had never spoken to somebody at work or another person in their profession about this is because they didn't want to be thought of as weak or crazy. And that is this sort of overwhelming machismo, you know, pirate ship version of what happens in the kitchen and some in, in front of house. Actually, a, a thing I've been sort of really paying attention to recently since I, I went and spent a week at uh, Tales of the Cocktail was um, the struggle of, of front of house people in a different kind of way because you have to really put on this face and, and project this happy version of self even when you're feeling at your absolute worst. Um, and that's a, a different thing from in the kitchen when you are being so you know physically um, spent. And uh, a lot of kitchens um, are still working on an incredibly abusive model. You still hear of tremendous physical violence that happens um, in kitchens, especially, you know, they're taking, because it was it was done when these particular people were coming up, they, you know, you hear stories about uh, somebody taking a, you know, a spoon, putting it on the stove to heat it up and, and you know, hitting somebody with it. And it's, you know, it happens. Um, and there is this, this uh, notion of, yeah, the more you can take, the tougher you are, the more dedicated um, you are. And uh, there's tremendous access also to drugs and alcohol and that is the norm and that is how I think you get to this danger spot that um, 
Uh, Greg, the chef Greg Baker wrote about this recently for, for Food and Wine, this thing called the empty hour, he called it, um, which is at the end of service and your mind is still revving, whether you're front or back of house. There's that adrenaline rush and all the sort of normal people in your life are asleep by that point. All the people who are going to say like, oh, I'll just come home, I'll make you a sandwich, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be, or oh, you should go to bed. Um, those people, those sort of angels on your shoulder aren't necessarily around. This is not to say the people around you are devils in any way. But they might not be encouraging your best impulse. So you go out and you drink or you, you do something stupid or one, one drink leads to another, which leads to it being difficult to get up in the morning, which leads to maybe some stimulants in the morning or, or something. And, it, and it's just this ugly, ugly pattern um, that repeats. And people are not having healthier behavior I will say, no, actually, I was going to say they are not having healthier behavior modeled for them, but increasingly, I think they are. There are some leaders, there are some chefs um, and front of house people who are stepping up and, and saying, you know, here's here's where I came from. I'm not, you know, preaching to you from on high because I was where, you know, I was in the thick of this, too. I came to a reckoning point and I made a change. Come on and follow me. Well, tell us a couple of those stories, because I think they're pretty powerful. I read one recently about the chef from um, Husk in Nashville. Sean Brock. Um, but you probably know these stories more intimately and firsthand than I do. But I think they are inspiring because people have overcome some of these issues. Oh, my God. Sean Brock is an incredible um, story of, of this. He is somebody who, you know, I've known him for a long time. He was the party. He was the party guy. Um, we would joke about getting brocked, which was a certain level of uh, inebriation. Um, and it was it was fun. It was this party. And um he it was it was killing him. I mean, he has an autoimmune condition that it surely was not helping. And uh, he got sober and he's been incredibly public with his sobriety and his he's been making it his mission to um, make better conditions for people to work in, to model that, you know, you don't have to behave this particular way to be the life of the party. People aren't going to think less of you. They might actually think more of you if you are this, you know, person who has gotten yourself healthy. Nobody's going to call you a wuss. Nobody's going to think less of you. Your food is just as fantastic as it always was. You were, you're still the same leader. You're in fact, probably a better leader um, because you have done this. Um, I think a lot about Seamus Mullen and he was on the brink of death. Um, he also had an autoimmune um, condition that, uh, you know, other behaviors were, were not helping. And um, he, he really, you know, he talks about being at a point where he, he was ready to die. Um, and being told that he, he was going to, um, he, you know, stopped, you know, sort of any sort of substances and started eating and exercising in a way which was probably pretty painful at, at, at first um, because he had he was operating in such physical pain and, uh, you know, changed how he operates in life and made this, this his physical wellness a priority. And if you look at him now, you look at Instagram where he's doing these, you know, shoulder stands and, you know, all kinds of crazy push-ups and riding 300 riding miles. 300 miles. He's, yeah. he's really one of the leaders now of yeah. the whole chef cycle. Yeah. And he, he says a thing that I think is so important. He says, um, health is contagious. I mean, you can't force anybody else into it, but if you can show them and model that sort of behavior and run a, a restaurant in a way that allows for time for people to go and, and take care of themselves, there's something incredibly powerful in, in that. And he, you know, he will, there, I think there gets a point where people weren't seeing chefs in their 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, still in kitchens because they had burned out and broken down by that point. Now, all of a sudden, you're seeing these chefs who are, you know, that age and, and getting older and, you know, able to keep up with some of the younger people in a way that they couldn't before. And but they had, to, you know, some of them had to get to the edge to to get there, but they're they're doing it. 
And I feel so much better about the younger wave of chefs who see this happening and know that there is a way to still have fun, to still be part of this. Daniel, just real quick, Daniel, my chef, Daniel, whom uh, started, he's a runner. He started a, it's called the Make It Nice Running Club. And so we have a running coach who's on salary, who who works for us now. And every Monday, um, the team gets together and they go running together in Central Park. And Daniel, uh, a few years ago, ran a two hour and 40 minute marathon. And so... Now he's like yeah. grandfathered into the club there. And normally it's hard to run the marathon. It's like hard to be able to run the marathon. Um, and this year, I think 15 people from our company are running the marathon. And he got it sponsored by Nike. And so they all are wearing Make It Nice you know, gear. And, and there's a pride around it. And every year, it's been like two more people every year run the marathon together. And, and I think we talk a lot about what is cool cool i think is too often looked down upon as an immature word but i think we are like high school there's a little bit of all of us that is our high schoolers forever and inevitably to get people to rally around something you need it to become cool and are, are these health issues that we're talking about well are they something that uh you've seen or is it because of kind of the intentionality of the culture that you've built they're not as prevalent in your in your own particular business or is it at a different level now? Do you have a consciousness now about it that you didn't have before? I mean, I don't want to pretend that it doesn't exist in our company because A, it does, and B, I'm sure it does more than I even know it does. That said, um, you know, our company was born out of Union Square Hospitality Group and there, it was definitely a different culture than like the whole pirate ship thing um, that you reference, which exists in so many places. It exists less at USHG and, and, and it exists less with us. Um, so that's not to say it's not an issue and um, it's not something that we need to focus on, but speaking to reasons why we feel blessed, I feel blessed that I came out of a different company where I learned a different way of doing things. Uh, Kat, tell us, for um, somebody in the industry who's listening to this podcast and they say, that, that sounds like me, I, where, do, where can they turn to for help? There, I mean, this is always the question. I mean, for community, they can come to the Chefs with Issues Facebook group where it's amazing um, the the compassion and empathy that people show uh, to each other in there uh, floors me on a on a daily basis. There are people who um, sometimes come there in extreme crisis, and the, uh, other people will say, "Here, uh, you know, here we're here for you." Um, you know, you can DM me, you can, here's my number, you can call me. And, and people have been walked back from, from the edge in a really, in a way that um, surprises, surprises and scares me on a regular basis. Um, the great thing is that more and more groups, hospitality specific groups are popping up around the country. Um, I was just in Denver and there was a group that had been called Mile High Hospitality Hazards and now it's called CORE. I forget what CORE stands for, but it is a bunch of people in the industry who got together because they were really dealing with, um, there had been a, a fair amount of, of deaths. Um, I always talk about their suicides and there are what I call slow suicides of addiction and um, risky behaviors. Um, they decided no more and they get together um, you know, on a regular basis, have a mission statement that they read and they treat it like a meeting. Um, and people can come there and, and be heard and have the support of other people there. Um, in the South and actually now in Minneapolis, there's a group called Ben's Friends. And it is a recovery group that is Mick, Mickey Basque, Scott Crawford, and uh, all of a sudden, and Steve Palmer. 
and uh, people can go there and uh, and understand it. Addiction um, is really prevalent in the industry, and it manifests in a in a in a different way um, in the industry that maybe it does in the public at large because of the access and because of the particular work culture. There aren't a lot of work cultures where you can drink at work, and that's and that is one of them. So it's a place. Um, I think it's Raleigh, Charleston, a few other cities in Minneapolis. And it's now. called Ben's Friends. Ben's Friends, and it's it's spectacular. Um, and these groups are, and there's another one in New Orleans that has has uh, just come up. It's a Facebook group called, I believe it's called Brain Food or something like that. But people, especially post-Tony, realized that they they just could not ignore this anymore. Um, And I'm thinking about what you said, Will, about um, embracing the tension. And this is this is a huge stumbling block that a lot of people have. Um, we're just not used to awkward conversations. We don't have the language for it. Um, but what I'm increasingly coming to realize is that if we're not willing to make ourselves uncomfortable in the face of somebody else's vulnerability and pain, um, it, it doesn't help anyone at all. Um, and it's it's gotten to the point where I, I trained as a crisis counselor in order to be able to run the Facebook group and the advice that they have been uh, giving to us and that is sort of standard throughout the sort of hotline industry now. And, and I'm sorry if this is blunt, but they've been advising people to ask people specifically about um, suicide. Are you thinking of killing yourself? And then there's an escalation um, from there. But it's, it's one of those things where I, I've realized that's the most awkward conversation you can possibly have with somebody but um they, the sort of proof that they have established is that confronting it that head-on is the the healthy thing to do that it making it um an unsayable word to, uh you know is, is is actually harming people so i always tell people okay either you know you have your line cook cry in front of you or you cry at their funeral like we have to be able to um see each other in our humanity in our lowest points and be able to have these conversations well you know somebody who is really good about this and there's a new documentary out about him now is fred rogers from you know mr rogers neighborhood but he, and he used to say if you can talk about it you can manage it which is another way of saying what you just said which is if you can put words to it right then you can deal with it but if you can't then it's that's just not going to get resolved uh, well thank you both for the work that you're you're doing on this. It's really important. And I hope that others will understand where some of these resources are um, that are available. Um, we're running out of time, but I'd love to hear from two things from each of you. One is, uh, what's next? Um, any new restaurants on the horizon for you? Well, uh, you've got, uh, tell, tell us, you've got... Uh, so we have Nomad in New York. Nomad in New York. Uh, and you've got Nomad in, in LA now, right? In, LA in Los well. Angeles. And um, of course, Love in Madison Park here. And then we have Made Nice, uh, which Made is our nice. fast casual in New York. We're, we're opening uh, Nomad in Las Vegas ah. in just a couple weeks, actually. Okay. So you have me on one of my last days in New York. Congrats. Before I That's go pretty west. exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Where will it be in Las Vegas? Well, so they, they've just redone uh, the Monte Carlo, a huge billion-dollar renovation to make it the Park MGM. But Nomad will stand on its own, um, which is why I'm excited about it. it I've always struggled with restaurants in Vegas because no matter how transcendent the meal is, you walk outside into a slot machine floor. And so our environment, you'll get out of the car, walk into Nomad, and we'll have a bar, a restaurant, a gaming floor, a pool, and it'll it'll be this lovely environment. Um, Is that the new show space? What's that? Is that the space where your new show was? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. It was was already cleared out by the time we got there. And then... uh, 
We had EMP Summerhouse in yep. in the Hamptons, uh, which that was kind of a pop up for yeah, the summer. Yeah, it was a pop up. This weekend is our last weekend of service, um, and then the team will have a month off, and then they'll all get on a plane and and move to Aspen, and we'll open EMP Winter House. Has that uh, for the first time? That'll be for the first time. Yeah, EMP Winter House in Aspen, brilliant. Yeah, so that's gonna be really yeah, fun, really exciting. Um, and so uh, those are the the projects imminently on the horizon. Great. How about for you, Kat? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the Extra Crispy Breakfast book is coming out uh, in October. Really, really excited. It's all the things you like about the site, plus a whole bunch of stuff um, that we did originally for it, and a forward by Hugh Atchison, and I'm really excited oh, about fantastic. that. Um, I've been working more and more with the Fair Kitchens movement um, that uh, Unilever put a whole bunch of resources behind this, and they did a, an exploration of kitchen culture around uh, the world to sort of identify the, the pain and pressure points, and are providing more and more resources uh, for for kitchens to, you know, do this better. And they've uh, helped me organize uh, a few events where, you know, travel to a city and get chefs together for a really off-the-record, plain-spoken conversation. Um, And we have a therapist on hand to talk us through it, too. We've done um, New York and New Orleans so far, and we're looking to do uh, some more dates with that. And this is all under Fair Kitchens? This is all under Fair Kitchens. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, okay, now to just put you both on the spot, because you know who else would you ask if we didn't ask you to? Um, a favorite place to eat, a hidden gem, can't be one of your own restaurants, but something that people should know about uh, that's just otherwise you know, not on the radar screen. Maybe, maybe it's not the kind of restaurant that gets reviewed, but uh, it's just a place that people should just give a try. Well, this is a restaurant that should get reviewed, but, but might not get reviewed. Um, and I have like some, like, you know, uh, alumni allegiance and pride, but Floyd Cardoz yeah. from Tabla opened Powala. Um, and after about a year and a half, uh, closed it, changed everything about it, and reopened it as the Bombay Bread Bar. Which is where? Um, it's down in NoHo. I don't, I don't know the exact address. Um, the Bombay Bread Bar. The I've Bombay heard about bread it, but bar. I haven't been yet. But I think okay. there were so many people that fell in love with the dishes of Bread Bar and were so devastated when Tabla closed and they were no longer available. And I think since Powala got reviewed, the Bombay Bread Bar may not get its own review. Um, but I, it, it is one of my favorite restaurants in the city, in the country. I think his food... Like his food is like a national treasure, as far as I'm concerned. And if I could just get on a mountaintop and and scream to everyone to run there, uh, I would. That's great to hear because Floyd Floyd has been a just like a great friend yeah. for us as well and a great champion. You should I'm definitely go and back. check it out. Yeah, I'm on it. Uh, how about for you? Oh, Floyd fan girl too here. Um, but there is a, a a taco joint in my neighborhood that I've been going to for. This is in Park Slope. <laughs> it is. Yeah, random. You would not think tacos in Park Slope, and yet I have sent so <laughs> many chefs there. I've taken so many chefs there. It's called Nuevo Mexico. I've been going there for 20 years, I think, and it's been open for longer. And what do you have when that. you're there? Uh, plate, I usually get uh, tongue tacos, chorizo tacos, and then the other one is a wild card. Tongue tacos. Yeah, they're just the the lengua tacos. There are just fantastic, and I think on Friday nights there's a uh, there's uh, two mariachis there. This father, I think they're father and son, or at least it used to be, and um, it's just such a happy, happy place. If to they're be. not actually father and son, you just really insulted one oh of them. My God. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and it's it's like sort of fantastic and mortifying 
terrifying but wonderful. And um, I think they changed management at some point, but they're still like, I'll eat tacos at you know other places around the city and stuff. And I'm thinking like, this is good, but it's not Nuevo Mexico. And and seriously, I sent Dale Talde there when he opened up in the neighborhood. And he, I saw him recently. He's like, I Who's still this? go Dale Talde when he opened up Talde in my in my neighborhood. Yeah. And he uh, and he, I saw him recently. He's like, dude, I still go there all the time. See, he called her dude. And he called her dude. <laughs> it worked. Uh, it's so great to have both of you on. Uh, you know, Add Passion and Stir is about people who are passionate and about an industry that has a lot of passion. And uh, you both obviously bring that. And we've had an opportunity today to talk a little bit about the other side of passion, some of the intensity and some of the health issues that sometimes come with that. Um, so congratulations on the success that you've both had. Will Gadara, it's just so great to see you again. And I'm Thank you, man. thrilled to have you on, on the podcast. And Kat Kitsman, thanks for this really important your work that you're doing that literally affects every person in this industry. Is it too flip if I say thanks, dude? <laughs> no, you got it. Thank you both. Um, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Special thanks to our producer, Woody, Paul Whittle, my sister, Debbie Shore, who started this podcast with me, as well as starting Share Strength and Kelly Griffin uh, and the whole team at Share Strength that makes this work. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.